to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. Activations. Well, just like data and measurement, activations is a topic that comes up in sponsorship discussions a lot. Now, for those with a keen ear, you'll know that that was the opening line in the last episode as well. And that's because we've been really focusing a lot on activations at the moment, a lot like a little bit of a mini series with our blogs and podcasts. However, the last episode focused on physical activations, while this episode focuses on experiential activations. Now, I don't know about you, but an activation that moves me from just engagement, and, and often that's great engagement, but to one where I'm truly touched by an experience is very powerful. As I say that, it, it occurs to me that maybe experiential activations are the equivalent of viral content on social media, the good experiential activations, that is, with truly great experiential marketing the brand and message are amplified so much by those who have experienced the activation because they really want to share how awesome it is and they'll often be doing that with people in the same demographic it certainly leaves a lasting impression sounds like an amazing thing for rights holders and brands to be working towards and the end goal sounds Pretty achievable, right? Let's create memorable experiences that get people talking, sharing, and have a lasting impact. But in the cold, hard light of day, however, that's easier said than done, isn't it? But one person who has a wealth of experience in helping brands and rights holders achieve just that is James Ward, Head of Events and Consultancy at TLA Worldwide. TLA Worldwide is a leading, fully integrated talent representation and sports marketing group with over 140 full-time personnel. TLA serves its clients from 10 locations, including its offices in London, UK, New York, and Newport Beach in the USA, and Melbourne and Sydney in Australia. And James Ward has over 15 years sports marketing, sponsorship, and public relations experience working in Australia, the UK, and China. James heads up a 40-strong team of experienced staff working for leading sporting bodies, sporting brands, and sporting events. And he's worked on campaigns covering three Olympics, two Football World Cups, and most recently, the Cricket World Cup in Australia. I'm Daniel Oyston and welcome to episode 71 of Inside Sponsorship. No matter where you are in the world and what your role or your connection is with the sponsorship industry, it is awesome and we really feel privileged that you choose to listen to the show and what we have to share. It's great to have you with us. Two people who have been listening and just got in contact to say hi and so now they deserve a shout out is Kent Wiggins and Arman Aluwalia. Kent Wiggins is the commercial manager, sports and entertainment at MKTG, and he wrote, really enjoy the podcast, great content and insights into the ever-changing world of sponsorships and partnerships. Good on you, Kent. Glad that you are finding the show informative. Aman Aluwalia also got in touch and wrote, Daniel, I just wanted to shoot you a quick note to say I've really enjoyed listening to your podcast. I always enjoy listening to smart people talk about interesting topics. Now, that's very kind, Aman, but I can't take all of the credit. In fact, I can't even take most of it. It's our guests and the core staff that are the real superstars that give us all this great content that we can put in a podcast for you. My job is just to keep them going. But thanks for getting in touch and it's great to hear that you're enjoying the show. 
Also joining us on the show to discuss his latest blog is Mark Thompson, Head of International Business at Core Software, with the topic of the evolution of sponsor activations and how businesses are changing to manage success. Here's Mark. Mark Thompson, welcome back to the show. I think it's been a while since we've had you on, although I don't have a great memory, so let's just assume it's been a while. But you, you have been uh, tripping around the world. I'm spending half my time now in either, well, mostly in Europe, but uh, every now and then in, in our new head office in the US. So, yeah, it's been a fair bit of time. My, my I'd, I'd like to say now my office is actually Qantas. So I sit in a Qantas jet more than I spend time anywhere else. Do you get on the plane and they're like, here's your messages, Mr. Thompson? They literally know exactly what I want to drink, what I want to eat. Sometimes I actually... The the, the chicken Caesar, no dressing, glass of sparkling water. Is that what it is? Yes. Yes, very good. That's the the entree. And then it's (laughs) often the burger and, you know. A shivers regal and a glass of red. Why not? So let's get down to business. We work in sponsorship and it's been through a significant shift over the past decade or so. We've seen drastic change from the old days where we just had logos on shirts and jerseys and people got buckets of tickets to hand out and there was a bit of corporate entertainment and then we started to move to a few website ads as digital started to come to the fore and they were all the main assets within a portfolio the staples but now there is a shift to a a much more of a heavier focus on fan engagement it's probably reasonably obvious but why has there been a shift in in more recent times to fans because the fans have always been there yeah, and the shift is more around around how partnerships are being activated, and that's then led to a shift in the assets that a sponsor will take from a from a rights holder. And there's heaps of reasons for that, right? But I've tried to simplify it as I as I do because I'm a simple man, and uh, I've broken this down into three kind of areas. The first one is obvious technology, right? So you know, rapid change in technology from social platforms to easier ways of reaching and, and many ways of reaching your fans has seen a sort of a, a much greater ability to find new ways of measuring engagement as well. And, and that then leads to the ability to measure reach and then success of partnerships far easier than before where you were really blind to, you know, who was opening a piece of you know, physical mail back in the dark ages or, or even an EDM, you know, for example, if it was sent out of a you know, non-sophisticated tool. Just you, cut and paste it into Outlook. Exactly right. And, and there's a lot of people that still do that and, and that's okay. But, you know, technology is allowing even those non, you know, non-wealthy organizations to actually get some sort of measurement on their engagement with their fans. And interestingly, the, the technology and being able to measure isn't just the rights holder that gets better and has more access to information that they present to the sponsor. Both people are measuring at the same time and comparing numbers. Yeah, exactly right. The second reason is I see more qualified staff out there. So, you know, in recent times, we've seen a much more professional and dedicated approach to sponsorship. And you know, that's a shift from two different angles. One is sponsorship was all, you know, perhaps in the past a part-time job for some organizations or molded, molded in with other, other areas, marketing and whatnot, Events. on the brand side especially. But also on the team side, we, you know, often saw sponsorship as being the job for the boys or job for the girls. 
So, you know, the ex-player or somebody <laughs> that, you know, gets injured or needs a job or, you know, something, that was the best way to do it because it was just about meeting people and smoozing people, right? Now, because of technology, because of other changes, the staffing is required to be more qualified and actually, you know, have some expertise and, you know, thought around what they're doing. And so dedicated sponsorship departments and dedicated and qualified staff is probably the big the, the next big shift that I see, even on smaller organizations. You know, the big guys have been doing this for a while. And then the third one I, I sort of think is the most important is more reliable reporting. So, you know, we, we've spoken many, many times across the episodes over the years on, on this show around you know, template-based reporting and people just changing the logo and giving the same report out to sponsors and just shoving it in and, and ticking the box. I've done my job. And, um, yep. Yep. But because of the more qualified staff and the more thoughtful process, because of the technology that is, is open to people, the sort of data points that people can now grab and the, and the sort of objectives that are being aligned to objectives of, of businesses are so much more tangible that success metrics are are able to be attained and we can tailor and, and fix reporting that is reliable for business outcomes. So, you know, we can, with some level of confidence, say because of us, you have reached X number new people. Because of us, we have delivered X number new leads to you. You know, that's reliable reporting that is able to come just off the back of, of more sophisticated approach and technology. Well, it's interesting. You talk about the technology is number one, more qualified staff is number two. And it would strike me that those more qualified, the professional staff, the ones that want to do a really good job are taking that technology and that reliable reporting and seeing it not as a job that needs to be done sort of mid-season or at the end, but a job that is integral to ensuring that you keep a sponsor and renew them. Yes, so does it mean we don't get logos on shirts and free tickets and a bit of a soiree with some steak and a few beers before the games or what? Is that all dead? Absolutely not. I hope not. Yeah. Especially the steak and beers. It's the best part about this podcast. <laughs> exactly. Otherwise everyone will start it. Um, no, but what it does mean is that brands and rights holders are kind of being forced to become more collaborative in their approach, which is transparency then becomes a given. And that's only a good thing. You know, one thing I bang on about is that the day the contract's signed, you're actually on the same team as each other because you're trying to prove to the brand that that you're a valuable proposition. They've made the right decision. The person you're dealing with, the brand, is trying to prove that they've made the right decision and that you're a valuable proposition. The outcome that you're both trying to achieve is exactly the same. So that collaboration is good. You know, it's far re- much you know rarer to see these days the sort of pre-built packages. We we still unfortunately do see them, or you know, chairman's choice partnerships. Oh, that Again, old chestnut. We still do see them, but they're rarer. But with the advent of sort of technologies, you know, logo branding and hospitality are not necessarily the premium assets that brands are looking for. You know, they're they're kind of starting to try and align their marketing strategy. You know, the big eighty percent of the pie with their sponsorship strategy that you know which used to be the smaller chunk so that they can drive the IP and the value of the fan and the in the audience that they can reach through their marketing strategy so objectives then become at the forefront and the most important part of the conversation and then the assets that you tag to those have to align to those marketing strategy objectives so that's where you know we're seeing a bit of a of a transition 
We are here to talk about how activations have evolved, and we've touched on technology, more qualified staff, more reliable reporting, and then also how some of the more traditional assets aren't necessarily the premium ones that the the sponsors are trying to hang their success on. So in response to that, how have activations evolved as a result of those things that we've already chatted about? Well, so more efforts going into activations. You know, before it was always, oh, you should spend three times your sponsorship dollar on activations. That's the best practice and things like that. And people go, yeah, righto. And then just never do it. And, you know, <laughs> as a form of sponsorship manager, that was both frustrating, but also if I was just looking to turn up and do my job and tick the boxes and walk away, it was kind of nice too. But now with the more professional approach, it's it's only natural to see a more concerted effort going into success, especially where more broader marketing business objectives are coming into play and as part of the conversation in sponsorship. The biggest shift in that sort of redirection is therefore a kind of a a much more focused effort on return on objectives instead of just sort of a return on investment number, which is still important, but that ROI number is actually tracked in a different way because of the objectives. And the activations are far more aligned than to tangible actions of engaging an audience because after all, I mean, you said this to me four years ago. The, the the target of sponsorship is to take a borrowed audience and turn it into an owned one, mm. right? So that the brand are taking are engaging well enough with the rights holders, fans, and and audiences, and turning them into their own audiences because they are so engaged with that brand through their activations. This is kind of where we see that happening: data capture, gamification use of technology within sponsorship activations in order and and achieve that sort of audience engagement shift from borrowed to owned is is sort of the bigger things that we're starting to see. And then the sort of activity flow is kind of what we're kind of seeing next. So if you're sort of asking about what what sort of then does this lead to, which might be one of your future questions, we're starting to see sort of an ebb and flow of sponsor activities. So rather than saying you get 12 Facebook posts, one a month, for the whole year, we might see people going, okay, I'm going to take those 12 Facebook posts and I'm going to jam them into two months, align that with the launch of a new product that I might be releasing or a new interest rate. Or, or even vehicle. businesses, not even just with the release of new products and services, some businesses are cyclical like like schools or holiday destinations. Exactly right. And so they can bring their assets in and, and they can have a hyper activity in one sort of part of the year and then they can die down. And then their success can be measured there. That doesn't mean that they're going to value the ongoing commitment ongoing because there still is hospitality and then there's logos and branding and stuff if their objectives so fit that way. But it also gives the the rights holder the opportunity then to sell those same assets again to somebody else that they may not have done before. So, you know, the the shift is kind of creating a behavior change as well across activations. I think it's an interesting point about that ebb and flow because while sponsoring brands might want to take assets and direct them into certain parts of the year, those people that run events and have sponsorships are quite often focused on helping brands activate their sponsorships in and around really close to that event. But we see sports in, particularly in the US with things like uh, the NFL, where they're creating content around drafts and preseason. They're trying to fill the whole calendar. And so sponsors are going to be much more 
attracted to you if you can show how you can work around the ebb and flow of your event not just the ebb and flow of their business yeah and and the us as, as well the, the reason they do that is to c- capture data right to, to capture data around fan behavior but also to capture leads essentially right because it's a new way of engaging with people that might not be submitting their email address on a you know an ipad at the game or or something like that it's a it's a, a an other way of of capturing data and we're seeing europe and australasia starting to kind of come along this this sort of ride of investing in technology to drive engagement so is that what is that what's next for for rights holders in in trying to manage this change it's probably going to be an ongoing change right as we get better and better is it based on the technology yeah i don't think it's next i think it's here now and i think people are starting to have the conversations and the good the good organizations around the world. So if you look at just as a pure dollar value, 80% of the top teams in the world are using core software to track and, and manage their data, right? So it's um, those organizations have, have the benefit of money to invest. But what we're sort of starting to see is in, Euro- in Europe and Australasia, those that are investing heavily and, you know, that are starting to employ BI staff that can analyze the data and help make business decisions and strategy around, you know, even around employment decisions and, you know, focus areas and things like that are starting to sort of get ahead. And it does take investment, but the upside results are fast and they're significant. There's an organization out there in the world that undertook a social media project with us and the results showed that 70% of their audience and and 60 something percent of their actual consumer engagement was from the philippines and this is a u.s top five major league sport 70 percent of their audience is from the philippines but if you ask that organization to sit down and build a buyer persona of what their fan was off the top of their head not looking at the data that they wouldn't have been from the philippines would they a 40 kilometer radius of their stadium right that's that's because that was the rules, and the data doesn't lie. No, that's right. So it shifts their it shifts their behaviour. Now, um, you know, as international partnerships open up in in the states, and the ability to go out and do that, which a number of sports have now taken, the first destination you're on if you're a sales rep at that organisation is straight into Manila, right? Like the data has driven that change. You, you've you've got now the ability to monetize a totally new area of your business that you didn't know. It takes one transaction to pay pay for itself on that investment and then think of all the other upside. Yeah, and it's probably a, a place that you would go where you get lots of really quick wins because if there's lots of engagement for that rights holder, those fans are probably working in organisations who would want to sponsor and access local people. Like It would be like shooting ducks in a barrel, right? Well, but global IP, right? You could be the official golf ball of the Philippines for X team. <laughs> like it, it doesn't is that what you came up with off the top of your head yeah x golf <laughs> it could be anything right official like, tire supplier correct <laughs> like it, it it doesn't matter and so because what you're doing is you're use, utilizing loved and trusted ip probably a few assets in 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 there around you know some endorsements and player appearances and and whatever but then you're they're activating an audience in a local market to a local brand utilizing that kind of now known high high level of engagement and interestingly it's probably strong engagement already without any real focus on the philippines as an actual audience imagine if they put some effort into it well that's right it's organic engagement like that's 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 huge 
Oh, my head is spinning. Great chat. Lots of good stuff in there. Listeners, if you want to go and read that uh, in its full glory, just head along to coresoftware.com. I think this will go fairly early, this episode, Mark. So it's 12th of June now as we record, and I think it'll probably be out in about two weeks. Are you got any trips planned up that you want to uh, tell people about? I will be in the UK from the 23rd of June, 24th of June to the 3rd of July. Probably taking in a bit of Cricket World Cup. Very good. Just so happened to yeah, be there. At that tough. Time. It's tough. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, but I'll be I'll be around. I'll be up around Manchester, uh, around Newcastle, and and then you know around London. Excellent. Well, if you want to catch up with Mark for a Caesar salad and a sparkling water, just get in touch. Thanks for joining us. Cheers, mate. Let's create memorable experiences that get people talking, sharing, and have a lasting impact. Sounds like an amazing thing for rights holders and brands to be working towards, and it sounds achievable, doesn't it? But in the cold, hard light of day, that's easier said than done. But one person who has a wealth of experience in helping brands and rights holders achieve just that is James Ward, Head of Events and Consultancy at TLA Worldwide. TLA Worldwide is a leading, fully integrated talent representation and sports marketing group. With over 140 full-time personnel, TLA serves its clients from 10 locations, including offices in London, UK, New York and Newport Beach in the USA, and Melbourne and Sydney, Australia. And James Ward has over 15 years sports marketing, sponsorship, and public relations experience working in Australia, the UK, and China. And James heads up a 40-strong team of experienced staff working for leading sporting bodies, sporting brands, and sporting events. And he's worked on campaigns covering three Olympics, two football World Cups, and most recently the Cricket World Cup in Australia. Here's James. James, welcome to the show. We have been focusing on activations on the show over the past few episodes, and I particularly loved Rick Conti's answer in his icebreaker question in the last show, so I'm going to ask it to you as well. If James Ward was a brand and the James Ward brand wanted to engage the market to get them to know the James Ward story and brand better, what rights holder anywhere in the world would you pick to sponsor? What assets are you activating and how would you activate? Well, that's a great question to kick things off. I mean, I look at it and go, to be honest, I'm in sport because I love it. So I love the amazing stories, the comebacks, those incredible moments. And given this is a hypothetical top question, I'm going to kind of go a little bit broad in my answer. If I could sponsor any sport, I reckon it would be anywhere in the world. I'd pick the next sport and the team that breaks through for that incredible drought-breaking win. I would have been with the sport through the dark days. So you know, with a sponsor, there's nothing better than being with them in the the down times, but then to be there for that amazing win, I think would be incredible. And then you're ready to celebrate and celebrate with the fans. And the fans know you've been there in the dark days, but you're also in the good there for the good days. And I reckon I'd activate by sharing in that moment with the fan at the event, post the event, and doing something that they'll keep as a memento for the rest of their lives and something that they're going to, by what you're doing, they share across their channels as well. I love what Budweiser did with their locked beer fridges when Cleveland broke their 635-day drought. And so their activation, Cleveland loved it. Everyone loved it because it was cool and everyone's experienced that. They've been in a moment where, as a sport, they've had that, uh, as a sporting fan, they've had that drought-breaking time. And for me, probably the greatest week for me in my sporting life in terms of professionally, was I was lucky enough to be in Chicago when the Cubs broke their 108-year drought. And seeing brands like Jim Beam, who had an amazing kind of integrated leveraging plan, had viewing parties and Uber partnership, 
and all these things come to life. And that same week in Chicago, Ireland were playing the All Blacks and they beat the All Blacks for the first time in 111 years. So it was incredible. Those two amazing sporting droughts broken. And for Ireland, obviously, the connection for them, there a lot of people interacted and sampled their one of their sponsors in Guinness. But I think that's for me is being able to be, and that's the beauty of sport, is being able to be involved in that passion and being able to activate it and uh, work through that. Breaking droughts sound amazing. And as a Parramatta fan and a Leeds United fan, we look forward to breaking <laughs> some droughts as soon as humanly possible. Maybe this year for Parramatta, do you think? Uh, no. Uh, Sorry to the other Parramatta fans listening, but uh, maybe next year. James, for those that aren't familiar with TLA Worldwide, what is the elevator pitch? Uh, So we're a sports marketing and management company with offices in Australia and the UK. Now, most people, I think, we used to be a company called Elite Sports Properties, but we got bought out by TLA. So people might know us through those days. And if they do, it's a lot around our management side. So from an AFL perspective, cricket and the Olympics, but we also work extensively across the areas of consultancy, which I um, look after, and merchandise as well. You're the head of events and consultancy at TLA Worldwide. Tell us about that role, uh, the team that you lead, and and what work you focus on. Yeah, so for us, I'm, again, really lucky to work in this environment, and uh, I pinch myself every day. I head up a team of 65 staff, and we get to live and breathe our passion. Uh, every day and uh, in every opportunity. So our role really is helping brands and sporting bodies bring to life their partnerships or their sports. So we've got four key areas in our team, which has kind of evolved over the years. It was you know, one area around partnership leveraging and a bit of PR, but it's kind of grown now. We've got a, a full marketing and comms team, a partnerships team, an events team and a digital team. And for them, we all work, we work across some of the biggest sports in, here in Australia. So some of our clients include FFA, FFA, the AFL, Cricket Australia, Formula One Grand Prix, and some of the biggest brands that sponsor them. So uh, NAB, Caltex, uh, CUB are some of those kind of brands that we work with. So we've got a really good spread and mix of the type of clients we work for. So it's fantastic. Let's set the scene nice and early with a good example. What's been the best experience-based sponsorship activation that you've seen lately? And tell us why you think it was so good. There's probably two examples that I reckon um, show one and both at differing ends of the scale in terms of cost. The first one, and relevant to you from Parramatta, was... I was at the Bankwest Stadium for the first home game and Parramatta and their partner A-Land gave a flag away to all those people who came. Very simple, but those flags are now going to be in the homes of all these people because of that historic moment for the rest of their lives. So it's a simple, reasonably cost-effective activation that they did. And the other one, probably the other end of the scale in terms of dollars, just last week in the NBA Western Conference Finals, the Golden State Warriors ran a halftime competition where they had a fan come out and they were shooting to win a a Google Home Mini for not just them, but for every single person in the crowd. Uh, Lo and behold, they missed, but they decided to give every single person a Google Home Mini. So you can imagine the response from the crowd, a bit like that Oprah moment where everyone gets something. But it was really, that was a really effective and smart way, really cost, um, you know, not cheap. But what they also did throughout the night with the Google Mini Tech, so they used the commands 
that you would use with Google Home live and at the event. So they would kind of get Google Mini to dim the lights or turn on the music. So a kind of smart and cool way to kind of show the strengths of the product, but in a sporting context, and then adding a bit of value by actually everyone getting to take that home with them. Some great examples and the flag one definitely resonated for me because like you said, as a Parramatta fan, I went up for that first game at the new stadium. We've all got flags. I've still got mine in my car and it created an amazing atmosphere at the game with everybody except the handful of Tigers fans there uh, waving their flags. I took an extra one, tried to give it to my dad, but he's a Tigers fan, so he, I can't tell you what he said on the show because it's, uh, uh, it, you know, this is a safe show with words, uh, but he refused it. So for the listeners, my team beat my dad's team 56-6, but he didn't want a flag. So, <laughs> but and it's interesting though. So I, again, I'm not a Paramount fan. I'm a Manly fan, but I, you know, there were a couple there at the end of the day, and I thought to myself. I know Parramatta fans who couldn't get tickets to today or weren't here, so I collected them for them so they could have a bit of history. And, you know, it just shows there's not many kind of sponsor freebies, so to speak, that you would collect on behalf of a friend. And so really smart and simple. Mm, it was good. We're seeing significant growth in immersive, experiential branded moments within sponsorship. What do you think that is? I think, well, I mean, it's just getting harder and harder to reach consumers uh, for brands to have those kind of personal interactions but even even just with traditional advertising you know people watch Netflix they don't see ads so there are fewer and fewer ways to get in front of a consumer and to be able to do that in an environment where they've got something that they're kind of sharing a passion point I think can be really effective and experiential allows this and if done really well it can be so effective and as I said really add some value to both the brand and the consumer. As I mentioned before, we're seeing more and a lot of activations and experiential-based sponsorship across sport, music, and entertainment. In your opinion, is there an industry or a segment within an industry that does it better than the others that we should be looking to for guidance and inspiration? Working solely in sport, probably I'm going to, I'm going to say sport, but I think that sponsorship has been such a crucial element for sport with teams, and so I think it's much more ingrained in every team and every league. And you know, a lot of teams and, and leagues really build themselves around these partnerships and leveraging those and activating those. So and the other thing for sport is by its nature, it just allows for more from an experiential point of view. There's more downtime for activations. There's more spaces for experiential. So I think that gives it that advantage over maybe music and entertainment. I mean, obviously with music, there's festivals and things like that, but sport, it is such a regular week in, week out occasion that for a brand, if you really have a smart experiential plan, you can put that across a season and and get some really good results. Is sport in a stronger position than those other areas? Because like you said, it's week in, week out, but a lot of us build it into our routines, we might go to a certain pub or restaurant or park with the kids before the game and kick the football around and then we're there nice and early and we're looking to interact with things where with a concert we might just go to a bar close by, get a drink and then be at the concert on time? It depends, I suppose, with the audience, right? So if you've got young kids, you normally try and get there a bit early and you're looking for other things to keep them interested and engaged. So I think, again, that Sport is very much a family thing, so there's it helps if brands can add value in that environment, and brands who do that really well 
you've got, and I call it that dwell time, but you've got brands who, and a lot of it, a lot of from an experiential or activation space, brands engage the kids, and while the parents are standing by while the kids are, you know, doing a pass the ball competition or some skills or things like that, they're interacting with the brand, and that never really happens. So, for example, it might be a Holden who have got a kid's activation, but they've also then got the vehicles on the side. While mum and dad are sitting there and the kids are happy, they thought, oh, I'll go and have a look at this car and have a look and you go, oh, I didn't, yeah, you know, it's bigger than I thought. Or And then it might be an environment where the, a salesperson might even have a, a bit of a casual chat and say, oh, here's some more information if you want it. And you know, I don't think you get that across those, those other um, areas. Experiential sponsorship will typically include elements of creative, production, design, strategy, and obviously execution. Where does a brand start if they not doing any experiential sponsorship and activations and they are thinking about bringing it into their sponsorship efforts? I think it has to start with the strategy so and what the brand is trying to achieve or more simply what the problem is they're trying to solve. And then if you then think through that, that what experiential offers, which is that can be that personal interaction or uh, as I talked about, that dwell time or a different way to engage, then you then go and work on the creative ideas to do that. And that's, you kind of move into that creative mode. And then from then you come up with a great concept and then it's into production and design and it flows through that way. Well, that's the way we work anyway. When a brand enters a sponsorship, there are obviously various objectives that they are trying to achieve and return on investment as well. Sometimes it is brand awareness and visual properties like signage and jersey logos are well suited. What objectives do you think experiential activations are best suited to help achieving? I think for me, experiential, as I talked about, is that personal interaction. So it's so the you know, things that can come through that is community engagement, relationship building, and helping build an audience or a database. That uh, can also help with awareness, but like awareness, if you've got your logo on the front of the jersey or you've got your LED signage, that's kind of done, but it's then working on ways that can be, uh, you know, you can engage effectively. A really good example for me, though, is we've had a lot of clients or potential clients that we've been chatting to, and they they use experiential as a data capture moment. Right, they go. Oh, we need to. Oh, it's great because we get data. But unless you actually have a plan for that data, and a lot of them don't. I've famously sat in a meeting and said, "Oh, we use it for data capture." And I said, "Oh, okay. So, what did you do? <laughs> what do you do with that data?" And I went, oh, "I'm not sure actually." And so it goes into this other pool of data. And I said, oh, "I'd be good to know because if you've collected all this data." How effective do people engage with it? So then we can devise our plans for this year to ensure that if it was really effective, let's maximise that. Or if you found that that people didn't, you know, once they gave you, your, you their details and then you sent them something after, none of them engaged, then maybe we need to look at it differently. But it's amazing that you know, it's kind of, it's a lot of brands. I think less and less these days as we get a bit more professional, but they stop at the get the data and then not sure what they do with it after. I think it's an important point because as marketers, we think that we have to try and capture as much data as possible because we're only going to get that one opportunity. But it is okay just to gather small amounts of data and build a bigger picture of that individual over a period of time as they engage with the brand. But as you rightly point out, you do need to map out what that engagement is going to look like because if 
we use your example before about Holden having a car there and a salesman just sort of showing people around while the kids are having a handball or a kick or something like that. If go in the draw to win a car, okay, here's all my details. What's your date of birth? Do you really need to know my date of birth? Like you just need the basics. And then if the next thing that you send that person is just simply a book a test drive, it's it's going too quickly and the people won't engage with it. It's a really important point around, like you, you, I talk about adding value. So you can't go, oh, how do we add value outside of ground that is going to attract people? And then all of a sudden, once you've got their data, you forget about the adding value part. You just go, oh, sell, straight sell. So, yeah, like they come to a, a game and for some reason they've given you their information because you're exchanging value and then you need to continue that. You might then say, you might note that they're a Manly fan and Manly won. And you say, oh, what, you know, what a great win by Manly. Hear from the captain uh, and he talked about, talked about exclusive content after the game. And you go, oh, that's fantastic. You click through and you link, you, you watch that. And then you build that relationship, and then it might be three or four, you know, communication items later that you might drift in a message or something like that. That, uh, yeah, that's really important for me. My mind immediately goes to crossing over into other channels as a marketer at heart. You have a lot more experience, obviously, in this space than I do. But what about trying to bring in that social media where the kids are there handballing? You can get a photo of, of dad or maybe with the kid or you know, people can put some thought into it. But giving them content to put hashtags into and filters and frames and, and sharing that content so that uh, it widens the audience, but it also gives gives that mum and dad and the kids something cool to share on social media. Is that something people should be looking at? Oh, 100%. And I think, again, it's got to be value-adding. And I know I kind of harp on that a fair bit. But it's if you're at a footy game, and, again, we've done this, uh, Holden's another a, a good, a good Holden example again, of if you're there and you're wanting them to you know, take a picture in front of a green screen but it's not really connected versus – for Holden, we got fans to come stand on the back of a Holden Colorado holding the NRL trophy and you then take the photo. They're sharing that. The vehicle's, you know, involved in a subtle way, so it's not a huge thing, but they're, and they've got the hashtag and things like that. It can be really effective. And so you use this audience to then share and promote your message. And obviously, because they're doing it, it's not as a harder sell. So, and again, through that process, they may sit in the ute and see it and things like that. So it's giving them a softer in- entry into your product, and I think that can be really effective. And I, and some brands do it really well. I think some it's the it's the fallback, like oh okay, let's do a green screen and a hashtag. And unless again there's a bit of value, people may get it but probably won't share it. So and I think people are getting a bit more selective as to what they share on their social media. But if there's some value in it, so if they share and there's some value in that, that they might win a, a prize or something like that, I think that you know that can help. There's some great points and some great advice there. Let's say that we have executed the the perfect experiential activation. What sorts of ways or, or metrics are you seeing brands using to measure the success of their activations? Yeah, and this is probably the the hardest area, and I think in and around activations, it's not that easy to directly measure the success. And I think that's why brands often don't do it because they can get a quick ROI in other areas so they know how many eyeballs have watched 
if they just do LED. But again, so there's different ways. The data capture is a, is a key one, and we've talked about if you do it well, it can be really effective. And if that is one of your objectives, obviously, there might be some, it is sharing. You know, if people are sharing this content and then through through them sharing, it's all it's eyeballs, but it's kind of our content, so you've got some control over that. So they're kind of the two, I think. And then there's, you know, there's new technology now that can measure how many people have come in and interacted with your brand, how many people have come to your site and things like that. And I think those things can track it and the traffic. So they're probably the ones that we see and you know, the other ones are surveys, post event and things like that, or competition entries. The ones that you can, from a metric perspective, that can give you some insight. But as I said, it is a little bit harder because it there isn't something that, you know, that's industry standard that, um, is used, um, unlike, say, you know, your social media or your, your advertising industries. We know that there's a few tools out there with social media that will measure sentiment towards a brand. Do you see any brands measuring sentiment in and around activations or is it, like you said, just mostly hard numbers? Oh, it's hard numbers, but then the sentiment engagement or the, the looking at that, brands will do that as part of a broad campaign. So I think there's a lot of brands who their activation is part of a broader campaign. And so they will look at sentiment across those areas and that plays a part. It's just then, can you decipher which part? Was it the, the ad they saw on TV or was it the, the on the way to the game, the, the advertising on the tram or the bus or was it the activation? So depending on how much detail and involvement you can get from them, but I think um, sentiment, if they are, you know, engaging with your brand and they're sharing their social experience, sorry, their experience socially, then that's fantastic and you can look at that and, and see the measures and we've used that before with clients. Well, on those broader campaigns, how important is it that a branded activation that might be happening at some football games or an entertainment venue uh, or, or an experience, how important is it that that reflects or mirrors a brand's other advertising or general media-related efforts at the time? Oh, I think it's really important. If you can get a truly integrated campaign, it can be so effective. And I think one of our clients, uh, NAB, do it really well across, especially across AFL, and they spend money creating TVCs in and around their NAB Auskicker campaign. They've got their mini, mini legends and things like that. And then through activation, they bring that to life. They've got integration within broadcast where the little Oz kicker um, gets interviewed, the Oz kicker of the week gets interviewed on a Friday night and then they bring all these kids together for grand final and they have a three-day Oz kicker experience and they bring their families together as well so they all come and they get to experience grand final week, they go on the parade, NAB have an activation at the AFL live site that kind of talks to and links in this kind of the activity that they've done and their, their support of Auskick. Then at the most important moment of the AFL season, when the winning team is being presented their medals, these little kids are up presenting the medals. And for me then, so, and then NAB's got, you know, their, their ad is being being shown during the broadcast of the grand final, after the grand final, it's all about NAB more than money. And they're bringing that to life. And then the, you know, the one of the most amazing things out of that kind of example is then every single one of those families who've experienced that with their kids who have been up, able to present the medal and have this amazing experience, they then go and share their experience and their inter interaction with the NAB brand across their social media. And so everyone, all their friends and family and their trusted network are seeing 
NAB's impact firsthand and what they're doing and supporting kind of grassroots footy and all these different people. And But they've seen it on TV in NAB seeing, you know, an ad talking about what they do, but then they've seen it because their friends or family or their brothers, kids are involved in it as well. So it's a really strong way to do it and I think NAB do it really well. That's obviously a well-formed, well-developed and executed activation. And activations have come a long way when you contrast what NAB do with single white box marquee outside an event as people walk in. We now see activations taking place across, as you explained, digital TV during an event and sometimes even separate to the event pre and post. What do you see as the most effective avenue for an activation or has the approach shifted enough that the norm is now just multi-channel execution? I think everyone ideally would want multi-channel execution. And I think, you know, especially around social and the linking through there, one of the things I've noticed from you talk about that kind of that white box marquee outside an event, and especially I talked to sport and dwell time earlier, I've noticed and a lot of our clients are doing it, they're taking their what used to be their traditional activation outside a venue which again, you only really, you can hit the fan pre-match, post-match, and if a cricket, it's during an innings break, but they're doing it inside the venue. So just this weekend, we kind of launched two of these for clients. So CUB, we've done a mini front bar at Marvel Stadium, and for GWS, we built a kind of a branded area for Toyo Tires. So for them, there's obviously the branded, you know, the branding they get within that environment and the benefits associated with that, but then it's for CUB, you know, it's, it's the front bar, which is connecting to their broadcast partnership with the front bar show on Channel 7. Uh, but people then get to see people, you know, the broadcast, through the broadcast, people interacting with their brand. And ideally then, connect, as I mentioned before with NAB, it kind of connects back. So I see a big trend in brands. And, you know, Gillette did it really well with the cricket uh, across the summer. Brands trying to do stuff in bowl that gets... And Woolworths, again, they did a, a slide across the summer uh, through the BBL. These brands are bringing things inside the stadium and sporting bodies are open for it because it's getting harder and harder to fill and sell out a stadium. So if there's something in bowl that can be a brand doing something fun or you know, showcasing their product that makes it more appealing for the mum and dad to bring their kids or the, you know, the, the boys to go to the footy, boys or girls go to the footy and have a beer... I think that kind of is becoming the way of the future in terms of brands interacting with sport. Sounds amazing. Lots of physical activations these days are amazing and not only connect with audiences at the time, so as you're talking about there, either pre or post-match or or in bowl, but they also provide great content for the wider audience to engage with so people who aren't actually physically attending the event ones that come to mind for me were Jonah Lomu hiding in a prize machine in an Irish pub that's an amazing one fans racing across the world to make the Champions League final with free tickets and fans trying to silently watch their team play qualifiers for the Football World Cup as someone who plans and activates these types of things, is your mind more focused on the content that's going to be generated and the long-lasting stories, or is it more about the engagement with people at the time at the event? Yeah, it's an interesting question in the fact that if you're wanting the content piece to be really effective and engaging, you actually need those who are in it to be amazingly engaged themselves. So for us, it's really 
or you want people who are watching it going, oh, imagine if that was me. So it's got to, for me, it's about the engagement with the people at the time. And if you do it really well, the content will come, that emotion and things like that. So we, a good example, we were lucky enough to do some stuff with Emirates when Arsenal were in Sydney a few years back, which was hugely successful on social channels because of the concept. And it was kind of that bit of a FOMO factor for people who weren't involved. But we uh, quite, it's a really simple promotion. We call it Race to the Emirates. We got 200 passionate Arsenal fans who were in Sydney at the time to register and they participated in a race to win business class tickets, return flights to uh, the UK to watch Arsenal play at the Emirates. And it was a race, but kind of with a bit of a difference. The catch is we kind of, we dotted four Arsenal players around Sydney Harbour and the fans had to race to find them. But the catch this with this is they had to take a selfie with them, share it on social media, and the first person back who had taken the selfies shared it on social media and hit the finish line. They were the first to win. They, they won the prize. And so the, the, the fans loved it because irrespective if you won the trip to the Emirates or not, you got to meet four of your heroes. The players loved it because as much as we like to think that, I mean, they do like engaging with fans, but... A, a player appearance when a when a you know a player sees that on their kind of schedule of things to do, it's not the first thing that they want to do. They love engaging with fans, but it's often a bit forced. And you know, and this environment, it was a quick hug, a quick hello, and a bit of fun. And so they really enjoyed that process. And we filmed it all up, we packaged it up, and it was, you know, it didn't hurt having the backdrop of Sydney Harbour through in a drone. So you got all those people running around. So the content itself was. An amazing piece of content, you know, it reached over nearly three million people across the world from that bit of content. But it was more around the people involved and the way that the the fans inter- interacted with the the players, the way the players interacted back with them. So it really is kind of that. It's if you get it right, the content will come. In my view, it's interesting you say that. People always say, "I wish it was me" when they see those cool activations, because that's what I always think. I always get really jealous when I see people having so much fun in cool activations. Just like those examples I mentioned in the last question, great physical activations nearly always seem to be something a bit out there, like a race to the Emirates, hiding Jonah Lomu in a prize machine. It's always something new and creative. It's not just picking something else that's already been done up dusting it off giving it a wash and repackaging it as something else it's always something really cool and 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 new what's a process when a brand says we want to execute a physical activation what's that process in terms of how you and the team work with them and the rights holder to get to that nice shiny polished activation and content that the public sees is it a superstructure process or is it all you know big markers and butcher's paper and post-it notes stuck all over the wall Depending on the client, it can be a bit of both. Right? So there's there's some, and whether it be the sporting, and again, it can be the sporting body, the sponsor, and the agency all working together in a room with the butcher's paper and the crazy ideas. That's fantastic because often, if you can get that going, it saves a lot of issues because there's, you know, not there can be the process where agency comes up with great idea, brand sits there and goes, oh yeah. 
don't know if we can do that. And then they, but oh yeah, we'll try it. Then you go to the sporting body and the sporting body goes, oh no, I don't think you can do that. If you can get them all in the one room, it's a fantastic experience. And, and if they're all willing with that view of let's create the next amazing thing, then it's fantastic. But more often than not for us, it is the crazy, you know, the, the butcher's paper, the crazy ideas is in an environment within our office. And we're the ones coming up with the ideas once we've been given the brief by the client. But the more integrated you can make it between all three, the better the outcome and probably the quicker the outcome as well. I've got a friend who works in marketing, spends a lot of time doing branding for businesses. He has a little black book where if he ever just thinks of a cool word or name for a business, it doesn't have to be an active job at the moment. He'll just write it down in his little black book and maybe he'll use it one day, maybe he won't, but he's just capturing those ideas. Do you have a black book like that for activation ideas that just come to you at random times, but you don't necessarily have a situation to apply them to right now? Oh, I have a folder in my inbox um, where I email myself. And the beauty of social media these days, and you know, I talked about the Golden Warriors idea before and the Cleveland and the, the Bud campaign, is if it's really good and in, in, you know, an inspirational type idea, you'll probably see it on social media. So I share, I, I, email, I email it to myself. I'll be seeing something on Instagram or LinkedIn. I'll send it to myself. I'll file it because I know there'll be something that will come up and I'll go, oh, I remember that idea. We also then, we share it amongst our team and with our clients now, we've, because it's becoming a, something we do a lot, we've kind of, with all our clients, we do a, a monthly newsletter where we just get the best bits from around the world and we share it with them to, um, from an inspirational point of view. One, to kind of make them go, oh, these brands are doing it, then maybe when we hit them with that crazy idea, it's a bit more permissible. Uh, the other is just to kind of make sure our guys are on their toes and seeing what's best in class around the world. So I think we're in a really a fortunate environment where you, you, know, you can get to see all these amazing ideas. You know, 15, 20 years ago, you might hear about it somehow in a, you know, a case study that's taken six months after. But if something's really cool, it'll be shared instantly on social media. You're going to see it and you can share it and you can be brainstorming it five minutes after, how could we do something like this here in Australia that they just did in the NBA finals or at a Super Bowl? Or it's a, you know, it's a really good time to be in this industry. Whether it's a bit of a wacky idea that comes from your black book or your inbox folder, or it's one that you're generating in-house with the team, what's your approach when you think you have a, a great physical activation idea? Because I would imagine you've been around this space a, a long time, that there would be activations that come to mind that you just you can just tell that they're going to work if we can execute them well. But it might be a little bit out there and, and you're either sensing apprehension or you, you know that the brand or the rights holder is going to be apprehensive about it. How do you sell them? on it oh it's that's another really good question it's kind of taking them on the journey in a way and a really good example of that is uh we've working with cricket australia it was let's put a pool in the gabba then yeah that's been there now for three years but automatically people go well that how the, the first thing if you're hearing that you go well how can that happen how do you do that right so we the first thing we had you know for our client we had to do was they had to visualize it so we went straight to renders and mock-ups, and we, you know, and with with an understanding of the space because we know the venue really well, we said this is how it can work. And then then you kind of tick off all the other areas who you know are going to have some concerns about something like this. So the venue, so the venue needs to know that if you're building a pool, 
that come the end of summer when they've, you know, for the gather, they're getting it set up for the lines, they're not going to be left with a big hole in the ground type thing. And in the end, we've they've worked really smartly and they use that space. The, the lines really use that space really well and they've created a, a product that kind of sits on top of that, which works really well. And again, it's that you know, risk and safety, so ensuring them that they've, you know, you've covered all the bases in relation to that because they're sitting there as a client, they're going, I'd love to do it, but we probably can't do it because of this, this, this and this. If you can answer all those questions in your pitch, I, or they go, I can't really visualise how to look, it makes it easier for them to then share that internally. And the beauty of Cricket Australia, though, is that they're really hungry and open to exciting new ideas like this, especially from a fan experience point of view. And so in that instance, it wasn't a case that there was no pushback. It was, we love it. Let's work together on how we can make this and bring this to life. And the result's been amazing. You know, it's it's one of the hottest tickets in town to go to the cricket and sit in a pool at the Gabba watch the game it's a pretty um exciting and you know uh way to watch way to watch sport especially in a hot environment like brisbane it's definitely great if you can get people to look at those situations from a how can we perspective rather than a this is why we can't do it perspective what are some of the biggest challenges that you found when building and executing an experiential based sponsorship? Is it coming up with ideas? Is it selling the ideas? Is it convincing people that they should be spending the budget? Is it trying to align it to objectives? What is it? What's the hardest thing? Budget, probably. Marketing budgets are getting tighter. And so experiential, it's trying to convince the, the people with the, you know, holding the budgets to say that this isn't just the little bit on the side you do when you've got that extra bit of money. It's really saying it is important and it can add value. The issue with that, as we talked earlier, is the ROI, is how you can prove it. So it is probably seen as the riskier, a riskier avenue. You know, you can sign on, sponsor a team, your logo's there, you get your Nielsen report or your futures report, which shows you your value, right? So you've got that, you're guaranteed, you send it to your boss saying ROI of X. If you activate, there's probably a bit more of a risk, but then the return, I would argue, and we talked about those examples earlier, is again so much better because you can get that personal interaction and that personal engagement and you can add value and you can be part of someone's lounge room for the rest of their lives, those type of things. So it's probably the hardest area for us is you can't guarantee a result or you can't guarantee an ROI, but it's trying to take your client on the journey to say, but you know what, it's worth the risk we think we can make it work really well so come with us on that journey if you had to provide a checklist or a recipe of sorts for what needs to go into an activation or a branded experience to make it great what what are some of the key things it would include my point one two and three would be adding value it's interesting when you look at say when a sponsor is presenting the trophy at the end of the season, the the teams that just won, the, or the end of the Melbourne Cup, or wherever it might be, they get up and they talk about their brand for five minutes, and it's just, and that's kind of an example of where, you know, it's an extreme example of how sponsors don't get it. Someone, if you're a sports fan, you've just your team's just won, you just want to celebrate and you want to see your team hold the trophy. You don't want to hear someone try and talk about this uh, amazing. Uh, interest rates or this, you know, I don't know, they don't do it as much as well, but there are, you, I mean, there's been countless occasions where you sit there going, come on, hurry up. 
you know. It doesn't sponsor, fit, does it? No, it doesn't. And sponsors that get it, get up, and they would, or agencies, or even internally, they just say, "Get up, say on behalf of us, we're really proud to be involved. Thank you for the opportunity. Here's your trophy." Every goes, "You beauty." I mean, there's never been a case where someone goes, "Oh, gee, I wish the." that sponsor rep spoke for longer, you know? And so for me, it's that adding value. So understanding the sport and that empathy. So you really understand the sport. So you know what people want. And I can, a couple of really good examples that have been really effective kind of activations is that adding value. So Vodafone and then Combank across the cricket and neither are clients of ours, but they, the simple one was the headphones. So if you could show, walk up, show that on your phone that you were a Vodafone customer, you got a free headphones with the radio so you could listen to the cricket during the day. Combank was the same. You give them, show them you, you got a card with the Combank and simple, but people are going, oh, I feel kind of, that's cool. And if, if you're a Telstra customer, you're sitting there going, oh, bugger, you know? And so it's really simple, but you've worked out that at cricket, it's a long day. People like to hear commentary. This day and age with phones and things like that's kind of not as effective. But back in the day when they introduced it, it was you know, revolutionary in a way. The other one, we did some work with OPSM for cricket a few years back, or a fair few years back. And we had the, so, such a simple thing was clean and adjust. So we had these staff walking around and you, you at the cricket, they would come along and people would adjust your glasses and tighten them up. And they'd look at them and go, or they'd clean your sunnies. And you put your sunnies back on, you go, oh, wow, you know. And we give them a little clean and adjust pack they could take with them. And at, in that little chat, they were talking about, you know, that we had OPSM staff doing it. So they were having a chance to engage with fans. They loved it. And then people at some, sometimes, again, that casual chat, it might be, oh, with your glasses, they go, oh, yeah, you're testing them, oh, that type of, what type of issues do you have with your eyesight? And they say, oh, so how often do you get your eyes tested? Oh, I haven't been there for six years. And they go, oh, you know, you probably should do that every two years. Just those little things, smart but really simple, and you've added value. And added huge value. The thing that struck me as you were talking then is that sometimes it's only little things that can add a lot of value rather than trying to make it too complex. And that, that that message of one, two, three, add value, add value really resonates with me as a marketer at heart because adding value takes the point of view of the consumer and starts with them. I know we need to get value out of it as a sponsor, but focusing on the consumer, the fan, the person that's there for another reason, shifts the focus from purely what we want to get out of that interaction. James, this has been a great chat. If people want to get in contact and continue the conversation or uh, I've made a note here about getting on your newsletter with sharing activations, what can they do? Uh, best thing to do would be to uh, hit me up on LinkedIn, really. So track me down, James Ward at TLA on LinkedIn and I'll connect with them and we can go from there. James Ward, Head of Events and Consultancy at TLA Worldwide, thank you so much for taking us inside Sponsorship Activations. My pleasure. Great chat with James there and thanks again to him for finding some time in his busy schedule to share his wealth of knowledge and insights around experiential activations. I trust you found it useful. If you want to connect with James, just head to tlaworldwide.com or search for James Ward on LinkedIn. That's a wrap for episode 71 of Inside Sponsorship. I hope you enjoyed another episode and if you did, drop me a line, get in contact and let me know who you are and where you work, what you're up to and how the show is helping and impacting you. It's always amazing hearing from you 
the listeners. If you want to connect with me, then you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston or drop me an email at daniel at sponserve.net or on Twitter using the handle at Sponserve. And if you want to connect with Core Software's head of international business, Mark Thompson, you can catch him on mark.thompson at coresoftware.com or search for him on LinkedIn as well. Don't forget you can follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Sponserve. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes and to subscribe to the show, search for Inside Sponsorship on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. Also, for more free industry-specific resources, including blogs, ebooks, white papers, and our Insights newsletter, head to coresoftware.com. Finally, be sure to follow Core Software on Twitter and LinkedIn.